<laughs> so, uh, well, today um, I, I, I wanted to kind of prepare us as we move toward Holy Week, as we move toward Easter, and thinking about the series that we've been doing on the paradoxes of the faith. Um, and I thought about like what would be two passages um, as we move toward Palm Sunday um, that would be a great prep um, for moving into the seven statements from the cross. And just so you guys know, this idea that I had, A, I'm just finishing up the book and my book's on the seven statements from the cross. It's something that I've spent a tremendous amount of time meditating on. Um, I think it is so profound. The entire gospel is presented in the seven statements that Jesus makes from the cross. And I love the idea of old school revival meetings where you just do church seven days in a row and we just pray that the Holy Spirit shows up and we, we worship together. Um, we study God's word together and it's going to be Sunday night through Saturday night, every night, and, and then culminating uh, on Easter morning, Resurrection Day. Um, and the seven statements, it's beautiful because Good Friday ends up with uh, the statement, um, it is finished, which is such an appropriate um, uh, statement to, to observe uh, on Good Friday. Um, but it's going to be an awesome time. But I think in moving toward that, two final paradoxes that I think um, are so essential to understanding God's heart toward you in Jesus. And they come in the opening teaching of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. And really, I just want to spend uh, this Sunday and next Sunday considering um, a couple of the Beatitudes. Uh, They're the blessings of Jesus. Uh, And they're mysterious. There's a variety of interpretations on what he is talking about. But I think that probably the plainest and simplest reading of the text is probably going to get as closest to the truth. And I would argue that often the debates with amongst commentators on on Jesus's passages, they're focusing on different aspects of what he's saying, and it it probably encompasses a a multitude of things. Specifically, are the Beatitudes specifically addressing spiritual state, or is it, or the Beatitudes addressing uh, physical realities? Uh, And I think the two tendencies when you read all of Jesus's teachings, the parables, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, the Olivet Discourse, is it's easy to move either towards toward hyper-spiritualization or hyper-secularization. Um, and the fact is, is that we're body, soul, and spirit. Um, and that reality means that the scripture is going to always be addressing the whole person, I would argue. <laughs> um, so the first one uh, of these teachings uh, is, is blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I think that there is no greater paradox than that statement. It's found in Matthew chapter 5. And, and if you remember, um, it's important to, to set up the Sermon on the Mount because we have to ask the question of who is Jesus teaching. Um, and the, the, pers- the people that he was teaching is actually found in the first two verses of chapter 5. Um, What's interesting is the close of the Sermon on the Mount, which ends in chapter 7, shows us uh, something that creates a lot of confusion uh, for us. It says, and when he was finished teaching, the crowds were amazed at the close of chapter 7, for he spoke not like the scribes and Pharisees, but one who had authority. But at the beginning of chapter 5, it says this. It says, now... When Jesus saw the crowds, in verses 1 and 2, it says, He went up on a mountainside and sat down. Uh, 
his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And I've shared this before because I think it's a very significant thing because I believe that the Sermon on the Mount is about disciples. It's about what it means to be a disciple. Um, it's about the impossibility, actually, of the Christian life apart from Christ's power in us. And I actually believe that the first beatitude, the first blessing, is the means by which we understand everything else. Um, because it's the continual reminder that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. But this is what is fascinating, is that you don't address a crowd, first of all, um, by going above them. Orators sp spoke in the amphitheater style, style. The people would have been seated on the hill side, and Jesus would have been below them, speaking to them. But instead, he sees the crowd, he leaves the crowd, which was common, and he goes up on the mountain, and when he's seated, it says his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. You don't teach a crowd from a seated position, um, and you definitely wouldn't do it from above them because that's not how sound travels. No, his disciples have come to him, and he begins to teach them. And so I think that it's important when we address the Sermon on the Mount is that, we are, that Jesus is addressing the people who have less, left everything to follow him. Now, the question then is, is, well, then why did it say that the crowds at the end of the teaching were amazed at his teaching? Because then he was teaching the crowds, wasn't he? Well, what I would say is that what you have here is a picture of the church. That whenever people, God's people, Jesus's people gather around him, the world comes, is drawn to that. And if you see a group of a group of people sitting around, someone who's teaching and holding their absolute, it's, it's why we do church in the park, why we're going to do church in the park, is that we don't go to church, we don't do the, go to the park and start yelling at those pagans out there. We bring the church to the park, and we sit as a community learning from God's word together, and lo and behold, people come and they want to know what's going on. I think that, I think this is a beautiful picture of why church actually matters, is that we gather around King Jesus. Why, we, why it actually matters that we gather together is that the primary purpose is not your personal growth. The primary purpose of the church is to lift up Jesus in a place like Portland so that the world may know that he is the Messiah, the living Christ, the crucified and risen King. And I love this because what Jesus helps us understand in the Sermon on the Mount um, is the realities of this upside-down kingdom. And I want to just, as we consider this first beatitude, I want to just begin with this verse from Isaiah 66, verse 2. All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. So Isaiah, as a mouthpiece of God, is, God is saying through Isaiah, I have created everything that is. Anything that breathes is because my life is in them. <laughs> and he says, but this is the one to whom I will look. Now he's distinguishing between creation and those in whom he is intimate with. He says, this is the one to whom I look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. I, <laughs> I just want you to think about that, that passage because I don't think that we, we can, you know, it's one of the 
one of the unfortunate aspects of Protestantism uh, is there, or I should say non-denominationalism. I, I shouldn't, I, I, I can't speak for mainline denominations because it's not my, my history, but I would say in non-denominationalism, where the outcome of the Jesus movement, one of the beautiful things about the Jesus movement, which was, I would consider the great, the last great awakening or revival that has happened in human history, um, at where it literally had a global impact. It was God reaching down and saving all of those hippie kids that the churches said were, there's no way that Jesus is going to ever save those people. And, and it didn't happen in the mainline churches. It happened in these, <laughs> these kind of fringe groups of like hippies that were burned out on drugs and free sex. And all of a sudden they're coming to Jesus in the droves. And so much so that in 1971, Time Magazine did a cover story on the Jesus freaks. And have you guys ever seen that, that cover picture? It's a really cool psychedelic picture of Jesus. And, um, and it was about this massive movement with thousands of these kind of disenchanted hippies were coming to faith and nobody understood why. And Chuck Smith, the founder of, of Calvary Chapel, um, who was you know, one of the key figures in that movement, he was told that in the early days before Calvary started, before the, before the revival happened at Calvary, um, he was sitting uh, in Huntington Beach with his wife and he said, I don't know how to reach these hippies. And he, honestly, he didn't like them. I mean, Chuck quickly, not long after the Jesus movement happened, I mean, it went from you could come in barefoot and sit Indian, you know, cross-legged on the floor to all of a sudden he was, it, there, I, I feel like the day that the Jesus movement died was the day that Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa required shoes. Uh, uh, and seriously, like the moment they tried to formalize and create a homogenous church experience where this is appropriate, this is inappropriate, where, where rules uh, how do we maintain this thing that we experience? Well, now we've got to control it and we have to regulate it. I think that there's a, for, there's a forgetfulness that tends to happen when God moves. And I think one of the first things that happens when God moves, and Door of Hope is coming up on 13 years, and God moved. And it's interesting how things, you know something we used to never do? We didn't do for like 10 years. Uh, so we didn't, we didn't have people greet uh, in the beginning. Um, and, and there was a reason for it when the church started. It's like I came from megachurches where, uh, where people, it was, like, it was like we were like, like Stepford wives, like we were trained like Christians. Like you come in, you're like, blessings, brother. Good to see you, sister. Weird, awkward side hug. We don't rub body parts because we're Christians. Like, I, I was weird. It was like, the whole thing was weird to me. And as a new believer, I didn't understand the formalities and these weird, like, so you had like, hey, take a moment and greet a brother or sister. Give him a, give him a hug for Jesus. And it was like, yay. And then, and then we don't talk to each other. And everyone, all 5,000 people go, they're, thank God I don't have to see them again until next Sunday. That was like, that's what it felt like. And so for me, it was like, I just want, I don't want to have a formal greeting moment because people should just be connecting they should just be interacting they should we should just create an atmosphere where people feel loved and known and cared for but it's funny how that kind of decision starts to make its way into the the dna if you will where it's no longer about well people should just be connecting because we're a small church now it's a formal thing where it's lame to greet someone and i remember the first time a greeting happened it was when we first hired russ Lacey 
And he got up with his Texas drawl, and he's like, why don't you take a minute to say hi to your neighbor? And everyone was like, what just happened? <laughs> like, it was like horror, like horrors. It was like, str- like, I just remember we had a staff meeting about it. We're like, I'm like, that is not okay. Like, we, we do not say hi to people, okay? <laughs> it was like that weird. But it just shows the tendency of like even good intentions, a desire to actually create real, meaningful, authentic community quickly becomes law. And I think that the, the Sermon on the Mount, when I, I was reading, I was like, Lord, I don't know what to preach over the next couple of weeks to get ready for Easter. And I felt like the Lord just led me this. is like everything comes back to this. It's about a continual humbling ourselves before Jesus and asking ourselves, is it Jesus that we're here for? Or is it, are we, you know, marking off a, checking off a box that filled our spiritual quota for the week? Or do we, are we gathered around King Jesus because we want him to be known? And we don't want people to come in and come across a bunch of barriers and laws and rules and regulations because if the Sermon on the Mount teaches anything is that Jesus blesses and comforts before he commands. And that's what people should be experiencing when they come in. Are we a church that is driven by grace. Because what we are told in Scripture is that it's the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. Nothing brings a conviction of sin like being loved when you don't deserve it. <laughs> nothing, has brought, nothing has brought me to tears and broke me more than my wife showing me grace when I deserve judgment. Or my kids. Or my friends, for that matter. Isaiah's verse is, is, I think, directly connected to what Jesus says in the, beatitude, in the first beatitude. And that is this idea that, that what God is looking for is not super saints. He's not looking for, for people that, you know, have their church life all worked out and their morality all worked out. And we don't swear and we don't, we don't, we don't sleep bef- around and we don't do drugs and we don't do all these great, awesome, sweet. Do you tremble at his word? Are you humble? Do you recognize Jesus' own statements when he says, without me, you can do nothing? Because I think that these are the things that actually define us. And what happens when we lose sight of the simple things, the upside-down kingdom part, is that it is natural. Our natural default is to just tell me what to do. People just want to be told what to do. It's the thing that people get the most irritated at me with in my preaching. They want me to be more prescriptive. They want me to give them, just tell us what you do, Josh, and we'll do it. You don't want to do what I, you wouldn't do what I did, even if I told you, and I wouldn't know how to tell you, even if I wanted to. Um, Because it doesn't matter, because God has designed you in a unique way, and he wants to meet you where you're at. But this is the thing that we can't get away from, is that Jesus is always revealing the heart of the Father, and the Father is looking for worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth, which means we are humble, and we are contrite, and we tremble at his word. I love Jesus' beatitude here. And a beatitude, uh, it, it, it literally means happy, but happy kind of seems... I don't know, it seems, it, it seems a little banal, like to just say, happy is the person who's poor in, spa- poor in spirit. Um, blessed 
sounds a little like spiritual, hyper-spiritual. Dale Bruner said, I prefer to translate it, um, blessings on the poor in spirit. That instead of thinking of being hyper-spiritual or just being trivial, I'm just happy because I'm poor in spirit. No, that, none of the, neither of those things are very helpful. But the idea that God is here to help us, that he is, he is one who has, is pouring blessings on us in a state that the world would say is the last thing you ever want to be. What is the mottos of our world system right now? Is it poor in spirit? I just watched a new series on Netflix. I won't even say what it is. But the whole premise of it, um, uh, it's so weird. I, I actually, I'm too embarrassed to say what it is. It's not even, it's not even like a moral conviction, just sheer um, vanity. I just don't want you to know how lame it was. <laughs> um, uh, but... The series was built on, um, on vengeance, and you're not going to guess it because that's like a million series. Uh, because, because in our culture, our culture is a, is a culture that celebrates victimization, um, and it celebrates justice. But here's the thing. Our understanding of justice is, is driven by scapegoat mechanisms. It's justice as long as it doesn't include me. So we love the scapegoat mechanism. Uh, and this, the scapegoat mechanism is built on this idea that we need someone to blame for the wrongs that we experience in our world. And if once we can find as a society the appropriate scapegoat, we will be free of that guilt, that, that, that brokenness, that, that woe in the air. Um, but it doesn't work. It never, it never works. And, and I think that this hyper-victimization is also, it derives itself from a hyper-individualization that says, blessed are those that recognize the God within them. It's the opposite of the Beatitudes. It's the, it is the happy person is the person who takes control of their life. The happy person, the blessed person, is the person who understands that the sky is, the, is their limit, that they have the ability to be whatever it is that they set their minds to. I mean, even I f would tell my kids that I can't even help it. I w you want them to believe that they're capable of anything. Then you might create a kid who thinks they're capable of anything only to set them up for the heartbreak that life is painful. Jesus never moves away from reality but he also redefines it in light of himself and he is the son of sorrows and he tells us that our greatest comfort comes in our bankruptcy and this is something that is profound it goes against everything in society and if we actually believed that we are as bankrupt as the next person next to us as the worst person that we've ever met, if I was to judge myself against my father who just passed, it would be easy for me to say, well, he's a horrible alcoholic, he's a drug user, he abandoned me and my brother, he did all blah, 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 blah. If I lived with that spirit, how would I have ever moved toward healing with him? How would he have even come to the Lord? 
How will they hear if there's no preacher to preach? But how will you preach if you don't actually care about them? Because if I was to base it on, on modern, kind of the wisdom of the age, they would say that your dad has done nothing to deserve your love. He's done nothing to provide for you. He's done nothing to pour into you. He wasn't even capable of pouring into me in the last few years. But I loved him. But I wouldn't have loved him if I wouldn't have known how broken I am. And you see, the greatest gift that God has ever given me is an honest vision of myself, which is that I am so much worse than any of you even dare imagine, which should comfort you in that I'm your pastor. <laughs> I killed three people. They're buried in my, I'm just joking. <laughs> um, you're like, oh, no, this is bad. The elders before are like, we didn't know what you were going to say. We did not expect you to admit you killed someone. I'm like, it's just a joke. It's just a, it's just a tasteless joke is all. Um, which brings me back to that dumb show. I want to tell you. <laughs> but I think this, this picture of, and I just want you to know, I'm going to bring these, these ideas together because I, I think it's important for us to understand why it is I get asked a lot of why do I spend so much time talking about our sin? Especially when Paul is, is addressing, where's the victory if, if, if we're saints? To be in Christ is, it says, if, if anyone be in Christ, the old has passed away, the new has come. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. But we need to be reminded again and again that a saint is just a sinner forgiven. And the opposite of the saint is a sinner that has not recognized the forgiveness that's available to them. <laughs> the saint is not defined by, by their ability to do the right thing. The saint is defined by the one who is right, Jesus himself, who is our righteousness. And actually, I would argue that the evidence that you are born again is your unbelievable awareness of sin an awareness that you didn't have, actually, before you got saved. And, and an awareness that actually comes in increasing degrees of clarity the longer you walk with Jesus. I don't see my sin less the longer I walk with Jesus. I see it more. I see sin in things that I didn't even think were sin before. And that's why I'm so grateful. Because the beatitude didn't begin with, blessed are those who don't sin. It's blessed those who are poor in spirit. And it doesn't say whether the poverty is literal, physical. Luke would give you the impression that it is physical poverty. The danger of spiritualizing that is that it's always good to be poor. And there are plenty of people that advocate for that. There's also plenty of people that advocate for the opposite. It's, it's truly blessed if you're rich. Um, we want realism. And that poverty of spirit can be a literal, like, I am a broken person, I am broke, I am without a job, I have lost everything, and that, poor, that could be, I lost a loved one, I lost this, but, it's, but all of it impacts your spiritual reality. And that spiritual poverty is, I think, what Jesus is pushing toward, but it, it comes through the holistic person. And I think that what we need as believers to understand what it means to be blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, is to recognize that Jesus is 
the source of our goodness, not our actions. Poor in spirit, poor in joy, poor in power, poor in righteousness. This is what he focuses on in these first four qualities, and they're all passive. I, I think that, that it's, it's hard for us to understand that Jesus is in the business of blessing the spiritually inadequate. What a gift. I, I often have thought about that, of like being a guy that the thing that, that really opened me up to the scriptures was the belief that God honors those that pursue him. Not with anything to offer, just with, Lord, I'm just presenting my dumb, drugged out, stupid self. That was me when I got saved. I'm like, I just pray that I'm not cloudy, like that I'm mentally clear. Like, if that could happen, I would be stoked because I can't remember where I put my keys and I think I smoked way too much weed. And so I think I'm in trouble. Please give me clarity, wisdom. It says, whoever lacks wisdom, let him ask. God gives liberally to all who ask, but let him ask in faith. The poor in spirit knows what to ask for because they know they don't have anything and that the thing that they need is Jesus. And I think that this is where the faith, the size of a mustard seed, actually has the power to move mountains. Because too often what we begin to do is instead of functioning from a blessing that comes from our poverty of spirit, we try to be blessed based upon what we view as our own giftings. We try to bring to the... to the table what we think we're good at. And sadly, it often leads to frustration because nobody else is acknowledging what we're good at when we're, we're so good at it. But the fact is, is that the gospel humbles us because it reminds us that anything good in me comes out of the goodness of God's very presence in me. Why did Jesus say to the young rich ruler, why do you call me good? There is no one who is good but God, which tells us that we don't understand Jesus' categories of good and evil. For you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? That Jesus categorizes, once again, two categories of people. Evil people that say yes to Jesus and evil people that say no. Seems to be the only categories. So, for me, as I've been thinking through this, I think of Jesus' own words in John 3, 3. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. It's the transition from emptiness to fullness. It's the, the words that Jesus gives to that religious leader, Nicodemus, who is truly seeking the kingdom of God. And Jesus is giving him wisdom. But Nicodemus is, is too grounded in his own understanding of law, his own understanding of, of what it means to be a religious, God-fearing man, that it's difficult for him to get his mind around all that you know, all that you have, all that you think you're capable of, actually is meaningless in the economy of the gospel. And therefore, just like everyone else, Nicodemus, no matter what you think you have to bring to the table, it begins with the recognition that you're bankrupt. And that bankruptcy is what leads to the spiritual filling, not the filling driven by my own gifts, but the gift that comes from God himself, which is God himself. And I think that these are the qualities that should draw a line between us 
in the world. The blessings. What it means to be blessed. Well, Jesus tells us, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. When we look at those four qualities, are those the things that define us as a community? Because I am way less concerned about what you do with the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, which I think is Jesus continually setting us up for the impossibility of it all, um, to remind us to go back to these first four categories. Like, when Jesus says, Whoever looks at a woman lustfully commits adultery with her. What's the point of that statement? To tell you that everybody is an adulterer. When he says, whoever is angry with his brother or sister, literally angry, it doesn't give a, there's no, there's no clause. Um, the new King James, or King James does a disservice and adds something to the text that isn't there. Whoever is angry with his brother or sister without cause. Without cause is not in the text. Isn't it funny how we want qualifiers? So translators were like, well, just put it in there. <laughs> it's not there. It should be because I know I have the right to be angry. That's essentially, that's the way that I view the translator. You know what? I don't like that, Jesus. We're going to add a little contingency there. He, they could have done that for me on the parents thing, but he obviously didn't like his parents, so he didn't, or he liked his parents, so he didn't feel the need to, but whoever the translator was. But that's a wrong translation. It is not whoever is angry with his brother without... Um, without cause, it's whoever is angry with his brother or sister. I don't know about you, but did you get angry at anyone in the last week? Anyone? Anyone? <laughs> uh, you're like, and Jesus says, you're a murderer. What do you do with that? But hey, you're blessed. <laughs> his point is, is to drive us back to this recognition it's to reconnect us to the source of life and love and he often used these hyperbolic realities unless you hate your mother and father you can by no means be my disciple why is he speaking in those hyperbolic terms he's saying listen i need the central piece of your heart i need to hold center stage i need to be the deepest longing the desire of your heart. I think blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven pushes us back to the picture that we have in Israel of the priesthood. It says the priest will not have an inheritance in the land for the Lord their God will be their inheritance. What he's saying is that they don't need the land because they have me. And I think that this is the thing that Jesus is trying to push us to. It's not, he's not trying to push you toward physical poverty although you might be in that. He's not trying to push you toward wealth. You may be in that. What he's trying to push you toward is a recognition that wherever state you're in, he is the author and he is the rightful owner. And that if you're going to be a disciple in his kingdom, you have to recognize him as king. And the beautiful thing about this gospel is it's the gospel of grace because he starts with grace because he knows you're going to fail in the kingdom the whole time. If I sound like Martin Luther, it's because I read a lot of him. And it's because it makes sense. Because anyone that claims to me that you can, 
that, you know, the longer you live as a Christian, the, you, the more perfect you're getting. If that's true, I would say that whatever perfection is happening um, through Jesus' presence, it is a perfection that only amplifies and reveals what is not perfect. And I see it as uglier and bigger and more insurmountable, which is the thing that brings me to even a greater commitment to confession and to community and the need for one another. What Joe shared today for his daughter, that should be the heart of a community is that we need one another. We need one another to care for one another because we are all broken. And that's the thing. What will make people feel um, drawn to the gospel is to see people honestly owning their own brokenness and saying, but in spite of that, Jesus is good. He's so good. Because there's nothing that he does, nothing that I can do that affects his love toward me. What he's, what he's calling us to is not do this or you're going to lose my love. He's saying, I want you to experience my love. And it's when you try to make the most out of your life apart from me, you lose sight of my love. And that's why you feel empty. I want you to come back to a place where you have intimacy with me. Real love. When we ask, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? I think that the keynote of the kingdom, this is the keynote of the kingdom, and it shoots a hole through the heart of self-sufficiency. Beatitudes are first and foremost for bad people in bad situations. <laughs> what, a, what a gift. Better to be lowly in spirit along with the oppressed than to share plunder with the proud. Proverbs 16, 19. Are we poor enough? Are we poor enough to receive it? To receive the blessing? We cannot be filled until we're first emptied. There is no conversion without first conviction. I think that often it's that we want to be filled with God's spirit, but there's no space for him because we're still so filled with ourselves. And I think that that emptying out picture is a beautiful one. It's not the eradication of who you are. It's actually, it's actually coming into, into the fullness of what God intended for you because you will never know who you are until you are rightly united with him because he created you for himself. And I think the poor in spirit are those that recognize their absolute helplessness before God. They're utterly aware of their desperate need for him. They have discovered the blessedness of possessing nothing because they have come beneath the shadow of the cross and are undone. It is an essential brokenness that I want for Door of Hope. An essential brokenness. You know, every revival in history has begun with an awareness of God's manifest presence, his movement towards sinful humanity, and it is his presence, it's not his wrath, it's his presence that makes people desperately aware of their sin, and it's why people, when you read about revivals, the most common thread you'll read in the great historical global revivals is a brokenness over sin before God. And it's not because God is convicting them of, of their near damnation. It's because God is moving toward them in spite of their sin and it unhinges them. It's Isaiah before God. Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips amongst a people of unclean lips. And God cleanses him with that burning coal of his presence. The word touched to his lips. And I think that this is the picture that we need to understand. As Jesus said, 
John 15, 5. Essential brokenness is found here. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We have all come out of nothing and are anything because God is everything. And I think that this is the paradox of what it means to understand the word, the one who has God has everything. And as I said before, that statement is not true um, if we separate it from others. For Jesus says the two most important commands is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Think about how hard it is to love God or your neighbor if you are spending the majority of your time preserving what you think is rightfully yours. And how much more fully you will love God and your neighbor when you recognize that everything you have belongs to him and what he has saved you for is that he might turn you into a conduit by which his love touches others. And this is why we can't separate love of neighbor from love of God. You can love neighbor and not love God, but you cannot love God and not love your neighbor. And I think that that's, this is the, the picture, the, the poor in spirit are those that are, are vessels that are constantly ready to be filled, constantly recognizing that unless it's Jesus empowering me by his spirit, what I am offering is of no value. And I think that this, this is hard for us to get our heads around because grace is attracted to a deep sense of need and we don't like to admit that we're needy but we are and it's okay because the gospel starts with the discipline of receptivity it's not easy to surrender it's not easy to receive help the kingdom of god is where the will of god is absolutely and perfectly observed and the only place that that happens is in jesus and that's why the safest place for you and I to be is abiding in him. So that poor in spirit just reminds me of Jesus' words in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, for you will find rest for your souls. On Jesus' authority, in deep sadness, human beings are in the God's hands more than at any other time. I've noticed that as I've mourned my father's death is the closeness of Jesus in times of great difficulty. That actually the, the times in my 20 years now of ministry that have been the most profoundly touched by the Lord have been in the deepest seasons of suffering. And I don't, I'm not a glutton for punishment. It's not like I want to suffer so I can experience Jesus. I'm just saying that there's something that happens when we suffer as God's children where he just moves toward us in a, in a way that is so beautiful, which is how we can maintain that place of being happy or blessed no matter what the circumstances. He loves you. He's with you. He's for you. Don't be too much for him. Just be your broken, messed up self. That's good news for Jesus, because that's who he came to save. He says, it's the sick that need a physician, not the people who are well. 
And we're, I'm looking out, you guys are sickly, sickly. I'm just joking. He loves you. On your worst days, crazy about you. May we be poor in spirit before our King. Amen? Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this gospel. Thank you for this call toward poverty of spirit. Thank you for the help that you offer to us in our poverty of spirit. Thank you for the blessedness of your grace, a love that moves toward us in spite of us, a love that is not content to exist without us. And Jesus, I pray that each person here would know that they are loved, and I pray that they would turn their lives over to you. I love that you open up this teaching with something so simple, so comforting. You don't command, you just pour out a blessing on those that feel like they have nothing. And you say, that's exactly why I'm here, is to give you everything that you don't have, which is myself. And I pray, Jesus, that you would move into the brokenhearted in this room, and you would bring comfort, and that we would come to you humble, Lord, recognizing that unless your spirit moves in this place, Lord, we have nothing to offer this city. And so I pray that you, Jesus, would be lifted up and exalted in everything that we do in spite of us. And we ask that right now your spirit would move as we worship you in spirit and truth. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Hey, friends, this is Russ Lacey, one of the pastors here at Door of Hope Southeast. Thanks for listening to this teaching. We always want to encourage you to give to your local church and would never want to supplant that. But if you're a regular listener and would like to help our church as we seek to point people to Jesus and minister here in the city of Portland, we'd welcome your prayers and financial support. Just head over to dooroftheopedx.org and click Give from the menu bar. May God bless you 